Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Political Science. Today I'm speaking with Paul Kenny, Professor of Political Science at the Institute for Humanities and Social Sciences at Australian Catholic University. Paul is the author of Why Populism? Political Strategy from Ancient Greece to the Present. This book takes a novel approach, not asking why voters might prefer populists over other types of political leaders, but rather why politicians might choose populism as a strategy. As Paul puts, this is a book about the supply side of political choices, not the demand side. Paul, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, th- th- this was a really fascinating book, and I what I appreciated about about it most was that you took a, a topic that is much discussed and you you flipped it on its head uh, and really went through so many examples, uh, and, which I just thought really strengthened the approach that you you offer. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. So I'm a political scientist and an economist by training, and I try to bring uh, both of those uh, kind of um, disciplinary lenses to this book, and, and I think that will come out as we discuss it. Um, so I went to Yale to do my uh, PhD in political science, and um, while I was there, I became fascinated by by India and its transition uh, to democracy, and that really got me uh, interested in the topic of uh, populism. So when I went to um, India to do my research, I became fascinated by Indira Gandhi, who's uh, one of the populists that I uh, have written about in the past. And um, that's sort of been the trajectory that's brought me to uh, populism in the West as well. And for this particular book, how did how did the idea for it come about? So <laughs> building off what I, what I just uh, mentioned about uh, writing of uh, Indira Gandhi, uh, she was never the most... Um, sort of the hottest topic whenever I would talk to audiences in the West about this. It seemed like just sort of some historical uh, concern or or maybe that populism was just a problem for uh, countries like India or or those in Latin America in particular. Um, and they couldn't understand how my approach uh, bringing this economic lens to it uh, would apply in uh, somewhere like Western Europe or North America. Um, so uh, when I tried to talk to audiences about this and, and sort of suggest, oh, this could really apply, um, that really uh, ended up pushing me towards writing about it. I, I actually had to show it uh, to put it on paper, um, and that's what this book tries to do. So, you know, for for those of us who are in America, populism has been associated very significantly with Donald Trump. Uh, but it, as you discuss in the book, populism isn't just uh, one political program. It's not one political leader. Uh, it has many different forms, different faces that it's taken throughout history. So. Uh, you know, in as general sense as possible, how would you describe or define populism? So for me, populism uh, is not an idea. Uh, it's not an ideology. It's not even a style exactly as some other people have suggested. For me, it's a political strategy. Uh, and it's one in which you get this personalistic or charismatic leader who tries to appeal directly to the people. Uh, so it incorporates this notion of the people that's central to populism, but it's about something that political leaders do exactly something they say, it's not something they believe, but it's the way in which they try to mobilize the people directly. And what I mean by that is that they don't use uh, political parties, they don't use um, 
patronage. They don't try to buy votes exactly. They don't try to um, bring people into these complex political organizations. What they try to do is talk to them directly. Today, obviously, they talk to them directly through things like Twitter, through the mass media, uh, going back a little bit through radio, going back before that through pamphlet papers, going back before that uh, through speeches, especially uh, in the public sphere. So populism is a way of doing politics, and it's trying to, um, shall we say, uh, outflank or outmaneuver or go over the heads of the political establishment to get this direct rapport between the leader and their followers. You mentioned uh, briefly in that answer uh, two other political strategies, a strategy that you might refer to, or as you refer to in the book, as a, a programmatic political strategy, and then also the patronage strategy. Uh, and I think that this is this kind of uh, these three are, are really useful. Uh, so I, I was wondering if you could you could compare the populist political strategy uh, to the programmatic political strategy and the patronage strategy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and you know, I'm not the first to kind of coin these ideas or, or forms of political organization. Really, it goes back to um, to Max Weber, uh, the famous uh, political sociologist. Um, and the idea here is that you can have um, a programmatic or bureaucratic type of linkage. And in the West, this is the one that we tend to think about. It's the way uh, hi historically, at least in the post-war or, or most of the 20th century period, I should say, um, the uh, classic American political parties have been uh, organized. Um, and the idea of a bureaucratic party is that uh, roles matter more than individuals. And you have things like a party whip, uh, you have uh, party leaders, uh, you have offices within the party. And there's a kind of ladder that people progress uh, up through the bureaucratic party. Um, externally, the party is linked to voters through organizations. So uh, on the left, you have the classic organizations like labor unions in particular. On the right, you tend to have um, uh, sort of agricultural kind of unions, farmers unions, you have business associations, and especially you have churches. Um, and so bureaucratic uh, political uh, organizations or programmatic ones, as I sometimes call them in the book, um, they're very uh, um, sort of, uh, you know, well-organized, uh, hierarchical, and deeply institutionalized. Um, and this stands in pretty stark contrast to the um, sort of charismatic or direct linkages you get uh, with a populist uh, political leader. The other type of organization I discuss is a patronage-based political party. And historically, these are probably the most common. That programmatic party structure uh, that we see in North America and Western Europe is the more unusual one. Uh, patronage-based parties rely on uh, clientelism to link with voters. Essentially, that means they buy votes. Um, sometimes this is a, a literally like handing out cash before uh, an election. In places like Indonesia, they call this the morning attack. They give out these brown paper envelopes full of uh, money. Um, and then you also then get uh, brokers or, or people who hand out the cash and who hold this block of voters. They then in turn sell those blocks of votes higher up uh, and in turn uh, until you get uh, to the political candidate uh, themselves. Um, so it's a kind of a complex sort of organization in which these factions uh, are, are uh, brought together through the distribution uh, of money. Very often uh, you'll find that uh, this cash is built from public uh, sources, so uh, people will use, you know, control over a ministry, control over some particular government funds to build up their own political uh, faction. And you know, historically, we've seen this in the United States, especially in the 19th century. Uh, but it's the sort of um, modus operandi of most new political parties around the world after democracy uh, tends to be introduced. 
Um, populism then is is quite a contrast to this as well, in that uh, it doesn't rely on this sort of pyramidal or feudal sort of uh, structure in which you know uh, kind of resources flow down the network and votes or support flow back up. What populists try to do is to link directly with voters and cut out all of those middlemen. So Indira Gandhi, who I mentioned, uh, Prime Minister of India, she literally said she was going to go over the heads of the old party bosses and link directly with the people. And the problem for uh, a political leader with uh, who relies on patronage is that uh, a lot of these brokers are quite unreliable. You can't trust them. Uh, they'll very often sell their votes to more than one candidate at the same time. Um, so here we start to see the, the elements of my argument, which is that populism uh, tries to lower the cost of winning votes. Yeah, I, I want to follow up on that and, and the sort of the economic framework that you you take to analyzing uh, populism and different political strategies. And you use a uh, an essay or, or ideas promoted by Ronald Coase um, about transaction costs. I was wondering if you could describe what transaction costs are uh, and how they appear in politics. Yeah, it took me uh, quite a while to arrive at this framework. Uh, I'd written another book called uh, Populism in Southeast Asia. And I, in that book, I, I'd suggested that populism was a low-cost strategy. But people would ask me, how, why, what, what makes it lower cost? And um, then I started to go back uh, through some of the, the writings that I'd uh, covered in my economic training. And uh, Coase's uh, structure really appealed to me. Um, the idea of transaction cost economics um, shifts what we normally think about costs uh, a little bit and in a very important way for politics. So um, I, I use some some economic examples or examples from the business world to, to uh, help explain what I mean by transaction costs. So if we think about an organization or a firm like Ford, um, we can think about every product they make as having two types of cost. So the first type are the sort of direct costs that we can usually think of. These are things like uh, the cost of the metal that goes into the car, the cost of the rubber, uh, the cost of uh, paying um, uh, uh, suppliers of you know electricity and on all of the other kind of elements that will go into uh, physically producing uh, the car. But um, the costs for producing a car uh, are also uh, indirect. And these are kind of transaction costs. What we mean by this are the costs of uh, uh, making and enforcing uh, contracts and search costs. So these transaction costs refer to things like every time you want to uh, produce the car, you need to hire uh, labor uh, to um, engage in physical activity. So each time you wanted to produce a car, if you had to go out, find a particular labor with the specialized skills, that entails a search cost. Uh, then you have to uh, make an uh, a contract for that labor to perform a particular activity. Then you've got to follow up to make sure that they have performed it exactly as you want it. And all of this is it entails a great amount of cost for you uh, as the person trying to produce a good. In this case, it's far cheaper for you to just uh, hire someone to perform a whole range of tasks that involves just one contract. So here you get uh, the sort of classic employment uh, relationship. So it lowers transaction costs by making just one contract instead of uh, many. When we bring this over to politics, um, we can think about uh, the 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 currency, if you like, as being votes. So the question is, you know, what are the transaction costs involved in winning a vote, in winning support? And, you know, with, with patronage, with clientelism, that cost is very obvious. Very often it is literally handing out uh, an envelope full of cash or literally, uh, you know, providing uh, a job which comes with 
uh, some sort of remuneration to somebody who will support you. Um, but there's an indirect uh, cost or a transaction cost, even with something like clientelism. So uh, somebody will promise to uh, give a vote in return for uh, you know $5, $10. But how do you ensure that they've actually done it? You need to be able to monitor people. Uh, and that monitoring is a transaction cost. Uh, you need to be able to enforce the fact that you have uh, bought those votes. So not only are voters often disloyal, but so are the brokers, as I mentioned. Um, and when you bring all of that you know, up a scale to the county level, to the uh, state level and so on, the transaction costs uh, for patronage are really quite substantial. So what a populist uh, will try to do is to lower those transaction costs, to lower uh, the cost of uh, winning votes. Um, and what we'll see, you know, as we discuss some other cases, is that they do this fairly successfully. So even though uh, things like uh, television advertising do cost money, they cost less than uh, building a party or than uh, buying votes. So the, the first examples that you look at are uh, examples of populists in ancient times. And I was, you know, I, I think it's it's always important to, uh, to to show this, especially when we're talking about modern day, polit you know, political issues. Uh, it's always great to go back as far as you can, I think, and 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 find some of the earlier precedents uh, and then compare them because oftentimes they can be extremely illuminating. So, what did populism look like in ancient times? Yeah, for me, it was it was you know really quite fun uh, to to go back and and uh, read some of the original sources and see could I find populism in the the earliest democracies. So, um, you, you know we. We know that um, there were many uh, city-states in uh, ancient Greece that um, uh, had democratic or quasi-democratic structures, but the one we know most about, obviously, uh, is Athens. That's really where most of the source material uh, uh, survives. So I can really only talk about ancient uh, ancient Athens and then uh, eventually moving on to Rome. In Athens, you, you had something like a participatory democracy in the sense that all adult uh, men, free men, um, uh, could participate uh, in the political process. This developed sort of gradually uh, over time. It, it shifted from an oligarchy where you had uh, an elite that controlled politics to becoming more participatory and, and uh, um, a greater number of uh, policy areas, especially over war and over taxation, moved into uh, the assembly uh, in Greece. And regular people had an actual say in, in how politics uh, worked. This isn't to say that you know every single uh, you know Joe Soap could uh, stand up and, and make a speech. That's not how things worked. The elite uh, still were the ones who led, um, but it meant that they spoke directly in the assembly uh, to uh, thousands of uh, other gathered uh, men, and this meant that uh, the strength of a particular speech uh, could actually sway uh, the vote. It was quite a, a sort of uh, emotional uh, process. And we hear, you know, stories of, uh, you know, brilliant speakers in ancient Greece who were able to sway the crowd one way or another uh, to their particular policy. So it catered exactly to this type of charismatic leader. There were no political organizations, even though there was possibly a little bit of vote buying. Most of this uh, occurred with um, people just sort of shifting their allegiance according to who uh, would make uh, the better speech at a particular moment. And, you know, often this was, you know, lamented by the elite because it created the opportunity for uh, rabble-rousers to sort of come along to to make these sort of dramatic speeches to whip people up, uh, especially uh, when it came to um, declaring war. When you move on to Rome, uh, things look a little bit different. You do have uh, the forum. There were public speeches uh, in, in the uh, cantiones, but um, these operated slightly differently. 
in that uh, policy was still decided uh, within the Senate. Uh, and you had uh, a very clear uh, executive uh, leadership in the consuls, the, the famous two uh, dual consulship that uh, characterized um, uh, the Roman political system. Um, and so it was, uh, there was much more of a separation between the political leadership uh, and the people. It was, you know, very clearly filtered through this, uh, you know, aristocratic, uh, uh, Senate, but this isn't to say that the people had, uh, no say whatsoever. So, you know, the mob or the crowd, uh, still gathered in Rome, it could still exert a force, but very often it was more on the edges of legality. So you have. Uh, political uh, outsiders who tried to use the crowd, who tried to use this popular support um, to pressure the elite uh, to get their way, to to worm their way up the political ladder. So the famous examples are uh, beginning with the Gracchi and going all the way up to uh, Clodius uh, towards the end, around the time of uh, Caesar. The third chapter of your book looks at populism during the American and French revolutions. Uh, who, who are the, the big populists of these periods and how did they compare to uh, the populists of ancient times? So the American and French revolutions are, uh, it's fascinating how they occur so close in time, but they really transpire very, very differently. Uh, the American revolution for, for all its um, sort of ideological fervor uh, was in a way quite conservative and it doesn't really generate um, uh, any successful populist. Uh, the the uh, colonial era elite is really the same elite that uh, continues to rule uh, throughout um, the the revolutionary period and then on into independence. So we don't really see any populists until the middle of the 19th century um, in the uh, American case. France is very different because it's a much more um, uh, revolutionary, if you like, revolution. Uh, this is in the sense that uh, it completely overturns the political order. So the aristocracy, uh, rather than being the elite that continues into uh, the new period, uh, is completely overthrown. Um, and so they, they some of them enter into um, the new legislative assemblies, but very quickly they're outflanked by this new bourgeoisie. These are a sort of professional class um, without the old kind of patronage networks of the aristocracy. And they mobilize very, very different. So we get immediately characters like uh, Danton, uh, like Robespierre, who people probably would know better, and what they sought to do was to uh, appeal directly to the crowd and especially to directly to the crowd uh, in Paris. Um, and this is where just even a few thousand people uh, mobilized on the streets um, could cause a whole lot of mayhem, um, not just the, the, the storming of the Bastille, um, but very often they could appear uh, right outside the Legislative Assembly and be able to pressure uh, uh, the elite into um, uh, doing what the crowd wanted. and and and. Leaders like Danton could channel this sort of uh, popular uh, energy, even if they couldn't always uh, control it. I, I want to ask a question. Uh, you can you can also describe uh, this. You know some of the examples that we've already discussed, but you can pick up on any uh, examples that you think might be relevant on just the relationship between populism and democracy, uh, and whether or not populism is a is a more uh, it's a true form of democracy. Or whether populism is a, uh, I, I don't know what the term necessarily be, but a, a kind of corrupted form of democracy. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question, and it's sort of something I'm working on on more now. It's not exactly something that I, I address in full in the book, but my, my thoughts on it are this: that um, in some ways, populism can be uh, pro-democratic, and, and that's something that I do talk about in the book. And that's where um, it's all populism is often a tool of the outsider. So. 
uh, very often elites, the wealthy, but not those who are exactly in power. If you're in power, you have very little uh, motivation to engage in that kind of populism. You don't want to be whipping up the crowd. You want to be demobilizing the crowd. Um, so populism is a tool of, of the outsider. And in that sense, it can be democratizing. So uh, very often what they'll try to do is to bring in uh, new voters to expand the franchise. And even with, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson, who we might talk about uh, a little bit further, um, he's able to come to power in, in uh, or to to, um, to win power in the late 1820s because the franchise has expanded. And so as democracy expands, as there are more new voters, as more new voters are mobilized and brought into the system, and these were the people that Jackson appealed to, especially those in the West, um, uh, that has a democratizing effect. More people are participating. Um, and this is something that populists will often try and do. So where there's a kind of a neglected part of the electorate or, or a, a, a body of people that hasn't yet got the franchise, whether because of age or because of some kind of citizenship requirement, populists are often the one to uh, push to get them involved. And that goes all the way back uh, even to the Gracchi uh, in Rome as well. They sort of made themselves the voice of this kind of neglected or, or ignored people. Um, so that's the sort of potentially good side of, of populism. But um, for me, uh, ultimately, it, it ends up ha generally having more negative consequences. And that's because um, populists often run sort of roughshod over uh, the institutions that check the majority will. So, you know, we could go back to 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 Madison or others who, who saw these kind of, uh, they're often called liberal institutions, but What's meant by them is institutions that uh, um, prevent the majority from uh, dominating over a minority. So as uh, Madison um, kind of hypothesized that, you know, you could have the 51% enslave uh, the other 49%. Um, and then once that 49% uh, is enslaved, a majority of the remaining 51% could enslave the rest again until you basically have uh, a tyranny of a, a tiny uh, few. So you always need some kind of protections for any democracy uh, to work, some protections for the minority. They have to be uh, able to organize politically so that someday the minority can itself uh, become uh, the majority. What populists try to do is to, um, they, they try to um, you know, mitigate this checking or balancing role of political institutions. So they'll very often privilege the executive over uh, the legislature. To say that, well, look, I as one individual embody the people's will and these institutions like an independent court and independent legislature uh, are illegitimate. They don't uh, embody the people's will. So that's what makes populism for me dangerous to democracy. What is the, the, the sort of uh, uh, sense in which populists are able to pick up on, uh, you know, this kind of dual duality of bo both actually being popular, but also then uh, needing to take apart uh, the the sort of the, the checks, as you were saying, uh, in order to maintain their power. Yeah, populists are, are, you know, they're often just sometimes called authoritarians or quasi-authoritarians or, you know, illiberal Democrats or these sort of funny kind of hybrid um, uh, terms because they seem to sit somewhere between democracy and authoritarianism. But um, very often they really are democratic when they come to power they uh, they win elections but as you you pointed out in your question there they they typically win when just a plurality is enough they are rarely popular enough or are rarely able to get uh, uh, sort of genuine majorities uh, in the initial uh, instance um 
And in in Trump's case, you had an extremely divided uh, field, and he's able to win with the smallest plurality of of any uh, victor in in uh, since the GOP introduced the primary process. And so, by winning, needing to win fewer votes, this obviously lowers the cost for Trump. Uh, so, the fewer votes that you have to 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 win, the less it costs. So, um, uh, and the more cheaply you can win those votes, the, the less it costs uh, as well. Um, things change sort of when they they get into power. Um, what they want to do in that case then is to um, deal with the fact that they don't have an organization to control their uh, supporters. So unlike a political party where people are members of that party, they uh, you know, say they join the Labour Party, they're, they're, they go to the Labour pub, they're in the Labour union, uh, they live in a set of row houses where all their neighbours are members of this union, they all vote the same way. So it's a very sort of uh, social process and people are deeply embedded into it and they're going to vote that way pretty much all the time. But populists can't rely on that because they rely on things like television. These are very weak links uh, to voters. So they can't be sure that those same voters are going to continue to turn out next time. So populism is not a very good way of keeping voters. It's a good way of initially getting them. Um, and so because of that, uh, populists have this great temptation to uh, sort of erode democracy to prevent uh, another um, another populist or another political party from uh, beating them at the next election. So in in so many cases, what you see is populists start to chip away at the ability of the opposition to uh, organize after they've got into power. And it tends to be the case that the longer they're there, the more successfully they're able to chip away uh, at those um, constraints on executive power and on the ability of the opposition to organize. How, how might we think about different Types of populists like Trump on the right, Bernie Sanders on the left, and you know Emmanuel Macron in the center. So for me, the kind of uh, more usually described political ideology, whether it's in economic terms on the left or right or center, um, or whether they're you know very obviously nationalist or not, you know, these things are, are sort of um, additions to populism. Populism is a way of doing politics, and we see populists. Uh, adopt different kinds of strategies, different messages in different contexts, but the method is the same. So for instance, to take a very different example, you've got Rodrigo Duterte uh, in the Philippines. So for him, uh, he triumphed on a law and order message, well, what he calls law and order, but essentially a tough on uh, drugs and a tough on drug crime uh, sort of message. So there was no particular nationalist message, there was no particular economic message. Uh, but the way in which he mobilized uh, supporters was uh, 100% uh, populism. Um, you know, with uh, with other uh, with other leaders, you see different kinds of of messages from from Hitler on his rise to power, um, or from from Bernie Sanders on the you know far left, emphasizing a, a, a redistributionist economic message that has more in common with the likes of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, or you have those uh, again sort of uh, on the on the on the right, or even who are quite unclear in their messaging, uh, like Donald Trump, who, who tend to stress more um, nationalistic uh, sort of messages uh, than any particular economic one. So the actual content of the populist appeal for me is quite open. Um, it's, you know, talk, if you like, is, is cheap, and they'll say what they need to say. And Trump himself uh, was a great experimenter. He would throw out different messages to see which ones stuck. And he'd continue with those. So for me, populists are are, are sort of um, uh, really um, empty when it comes to uh, content. They'll they'll fill it with whatever they need to to mobilize the crowd, and they'll often experiment to see with what works. Are there other ways in which 
you take are taking sort of economic ideas or frameworks to understanding populism that we haven't already discussed? Yeah, so there's a few that I throw in uh, to the book that that, that help explain particular um, um, particular dynamics that uh, um, make it possible for populists to win. So, you know, um, one of the one of the good examples I think is, uh, you know, why would clientelism or patronage uh, be successful at one point uh, in keeping populists out, and then uh, seemingly all of a sudden fail to allow populists in? So we could look at something like. Um, the Italian political system. This was the classic clientelistic uh, or patronage-based political system. You have the Democratic Christian Democratic Party, uh, that's the dominant political force from the post-war period right the way through up until uh, 1990 or so. And then at this point, Silvio Berlusconi uh, bursts onto the political scene. So why does the uh, Italian political system uh, implode? We know in that case that there was a big corruption uh, scandal that the, the, the um, uh, members of the Christian Democratic Party were um, uh, just sort of deeply engaged in uh, um, corrupt relationships with um, uh, with uh, businessmen, uh, you know, buying votes, engaged with the mob. It, it, it was incredibly corrupt, and and the Italian political system just uh, you know implodes at this point. The DC uh, completely vanishes. All of the old political parties essentially vanish, and Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia uh, comes along in the mid nineteen nineties to take over. And Italy has never really had a stable party system uh, since, and, and we've seen this sort of recurrent emergence of populism. Um, why does the political system collapse in the first place? So um, economics, I think, can can give us some insight into this. So why is it that um, in the early phases, uh, patronage works? Well, it's fairly low cost, and most of those costs can be borne uh, from uh, the exchequer, from public sources. So you're able to provide jobs, you're able to uh, maybe provide some kind of cash for some other sort of benefits, or a promise of, of um, intervening with the bureaucracy in some way. So Candidates in a party can use these sort of inducements, uh, typically financial, but sometimes other inducements to uh, keep a block of uh, supporters together. And this can kind of cohere into uh, a patronage party as these factions are uh, bought together by giving out uh, ministries and uh, other public contracts and so on. The problem, though, as I mentioned, is that brokers or these guys in the middle uh, are often disloyal. So you're willing to take your faction and your block of voters and sell it to another leader. So what you see in systems like the Italian one is that very few leaders can stay at the top for long because factions are willing to sell their block of votes uh, to another leader who will give them a better ministry, uh, a better ministry, for instance, where they can bilk off more funds. Uh, and so you see in the Italian system that you know governments, prime ministers, basically change you know almost one a year or even more than one a year uh, because of this sort of disloyalty of those even from within their own party, and. Because brokers are uh, sort of willing and able to uh, be so disloyal, the cost of buying their votes tends to ratchet upwards. Um, and you tend to have this sort of uh, uh, effect whereby the cost of keeping power goes up and up and up and up, which increases the amount of corruption uh, over time to be able to continue to buy off these voters. So the Italian political system has this um, quality where the cost of staying in power goes up and up and up and up and up. And then Rival political parties come along. Sometimes they break away. Coalitions uh, uh, are then developed between uh, factions and different patronage parties, and the cost of this continues to go uh, up and up and up, and eventually it becomes uh, unsustainable. And in the Italian case, it just collapses uh, under its own weight, where the corruption is so 
uh, out of control that it can no longer uh, be hidden. Uh, and then this creates the opportunity for someone like Berlusconi uh, to be able to say, hey, look, I'll sweep out the old uh, elite. Um, don't mind these corrupt guys. We'll just have this direct link uh, between uh, me, the clean, you know, upstanding uh, leader and, and you, the supporters. And this is the sort of kind of classic uh, dynamic whereby the, the, the costs of patronage have this uh, upward ratcheting uh, quality uh, that populists can promise to sort of cut through that uh, kind of Gordian knot. My last question is is a more general question just about the present moment and the current state of populism. Um, obviously, 2016, you know, Brexit and Trump and, and other uh, elections, it was, was kind of the maybe a peaking moment uh, for, for populism. And now it seems like populism, uh, the wave may, may have crested. Uh, do, do you get that without having, you know, without asking you to predict? the future or anything like that. Uh, do you get the sense or the feeling that that populism is something that is going to uh, maybe for in the short term recede into the past? Or do you think that uh, populism is something that is still alive and well and that is something that could easily uh, rear its head again? Uh, unfortunately, I think it's the latter. I think populism is pretty here to stay in the short term. Because if we look at you know, what are the alternatives? Um, you know, uh, patronage, as I've, I've just been describing, is uh, quite cost ineffective. It's not really a way to manage um, uh, democracy uh, in the West. It's it's far too expensive. Very few um, credible political actors can really pursue that strategy um, in the West anymore. Um, what then of, of bureaucratic parties? Well, um, they're really not in a good condition, as as a lot of uh, other writers who I draw on in the book have, have talked about. So party memberships have you know absolutely tanked uh, everywhere. Uh, Peter Mayer, the uh, very famous Irish political scientist, um, had written about this um, a long time ago, as long ago as the 90s uh, and the 80s, um, that political parties were, were really hemorrhaging uh, members. Labor unions are um, uh, really sort of still in decline, not just in America, but in Western Europe. And so... And, and churches, of course, for those parties on the right, Christian Democratic parties, they've been uh, really losing members uh, quite substantially. So this has created a, a very large body of voters that are no longer really attached in a deep way to political parties. So they'll vote for a liberal party one day, a conservative party the next, um, or maybe something more radical in the British case like UKIP uh, in the election after that. So because there's very little loyalty now and an embedded sort of uh, loyalty, in a, in a, I mean, in a social kind of way, that people have real deep links to political parties because that's um, uh, become a thing of the past and we haven't developed new kinds of links between people and parties. I think populists are always going to find a way in because these voters can be mobilized uh, quite cheaply. So, you know, some some popular celebrity uh, who's already well known, someone with an awful lot of money uh, who can quickly develop name recognition. Um, it's very easy for them to to win over these weakly attached sort of voters. So um, until the prospects for for new kinds of party, um, not that they have to be exactly like the the ones of old, but other new kinds of more stable political linkages that um, reflect the way that we live and work today. Uh, until those kind of uh, political links develop, uh, where perhaps people have more uh, ownership over their party, where they can participate um, in a in a real sort of way in the organization and the ongoings of their party, uh, perhaps using new kinds of technology, um, 
when those things are sort of developed and people uh, become more bonded to new style political parties, then I think maybe you could see this um, uh, appeal or, or cost effectiveness of populism start to ebb away. But for the present period, while um, parties remain so deeply unpopular, um, I think it means that the populist uh, the populist wave uh, may not even have crested yet. In the wake of this project, are you continuing an examination of populism, uh, or are you exploring any other new topics? So both. Have. I'm I'm also writing another new short book, uh, Populism: What Everyone Needs to Know for Oxford. Um, so this is going to be a shorter uh, examination and and something that uh, you know reassesses the the just massive literature out there on populism. So I hope it'll be useful pe to people as a sort of first way in. But I want to talk in that book, not just about um, how populists come to power, as I do in this book, uh, but also about what populists do when they get to power. So it'll be a kind of you know broad examination of the whole uh, kind of populist phenomenon. Um, but beyond that, I'm also looking at other issues like um, uh, personalist dictatorship, which is a little bit related, but you know, how, how dictators manage to um, use institutions and use rules to uh, uh, keep power and to personalize power. So there's a bit of a paradox there that, um, uh, again, we see it, we see dictators follow some of these uh, economic rules, if you like, so to 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 use the institutions that are there to their advantage in the most cost-effective um, way. But again, most of my research, I could talk about others, but it again tries to apply this some of this microeconomic um, theoretical lenses to political questions. Wonderful. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you.